want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Now, we've covered a lot of ground already throughout this series. And so in this episode, I wanted to go back, all the way back, basically, to something that we covered fairly fleetingly in our first episode, what to look for in a CEO candidate, what makes a good CEO, and what makes someone, quite frankly, horribly wrong for the job. And to help us answer those questions, we've got a guest who knows this space incredibly well. He'll join us in a moment. First though, as always, I'm with Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and the author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. G'day, Michael. Great to be here. In our very first episode, we discussed, albeit fairly briefly, some of the reasons that someone might want to become a CEO. Uh, We've covered a heck of a lot of topics between then and and now, but I think it's worth delving back into it in a bit more detail, especially when we've got the perfect guest to do that. Our guest today is Tanun Pasha. If I was to go into his credentials and his experience, we'd be here for a very very long time. So I'll summarize it to say that he's an experienced CEO and CIO in areas including asset and wealth management. He's a fintech founder, an entrepreneur, and importantly for well, for this conversation at least, he's very experienced in leadership advisory and search. Tanoon Pasha has worked all over the world and joins us today from the UK. Tanoon, welcome to Three Peaks Leadership. Thank you very much, Michael. It's lovely to be here. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I think our listeners are going to find it really interesting and useful because you represent an area that we haven't really come across in the sense of executive search. But before we do that, perhaps I could ask you, you know, you and I met in Singapore, you were incredibly helpful to me, gave great guidance and assistance. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that you had been a CEO in the past before you took your role. So perhaps you could talk us through the role that you had before you took the executive search role and your role within the executive search company? Sure, Lev. So the very short summary of that is I started my career as an investor working for a sovereign wealth fund. And about 15 years ago, uh, I moved into general management, first working for an insurer in Hong Kong, covering their equity business across Asia Pacific. And then in Singapore, uh, working as chief executive for the region for the investment side of what the largest insurer in, in the UK, Aviva. Just before I joined Spence Stewart, which was the executive leadership and search firm that I led uh, Southeast Asia, the asset management and wealth management practice for, I took time out to set up uh, a fintech and regtech business, uh, which was founded, premised on uh, some of the challenges and the gaps I saw in the service proposition that the technology industry had facing off to the financial sector. So vast experience. And then you jumped across the table, if you, as it were, and and became um, a guide to boards on their CEO selection. A very eminent executive search practitioner was quoted in my book as saying, it is unfathomable to me why anybody would want to take this job. I wonder if we could dig into that a little bit and and ask you what your thoughts are on that. I see the merit in that statement. The job of a CEO is a very challenging one. It's an all-consuming role if you're going to do it well. You, You can't take time off or you shouldn't really be taking time off 
in the same way that the people under your charge do, because you have such a duty of care and responsibility to the organization, to the shareholders, and the people who are working in the firm that, you, that, that you're leading. It is also particularly challenging as a role, uh, both in my experience and the experience of the people that I've helped over the years or counseled over the years, because the levers under your control are particularly constricted. Everything you do, you do through the agency of others. You have more individuals and less clarity in terms of your tasks than anybody else in the organization. In fact, part of your job and a big part of your job is creating that clarity and that purpose for the organization. You know, so it's, it's hard work. It's demanding work. If you're doing it well, it will take a great deal out of you. Uh, and the nature for all of us is that, you know, the commodity that is scarcest for any individual is time. There are only so many hours in the day. And, you know, people have families, people have hobbies, people have other obligations that they like to be involved in. In, in you know, there are folks who, who like to volunteer for things, people who like to be involved in advocacy uh, and in shaping the industry. And you have less time for that than you would like. So you trade off a lot to become a CEO. Um, so I, I, like, as I said, I can see that perspective. Yeah, it's very interesting because as a CEO, your presence on extraneous boards or advisory committees or industry bodies is even more demanded, notwithstanding the fact that you've got even less time. So um, it's a complete contradiction uh, in terms of, of time take. How would you advise a potential CEO to manage that balance? The thing that I found CEOs and people in general struggle most with although CEOs on average tend to be much better at this than most people, is trust delegation. You know, so, so there is no way you can do all of that on your own. You have to assemble an executive team that you trust and you have to operate almost at an intuitive level of reactiveness or reflexiveness amongst each other. There has to be a certain degree of constancy and predictability in terms of how you know people are going to do things so that you can hand off you know, critical tasks and critical aspects of strategy and design to other people, right? So what, one of the things that I've, I've seen as a somewhat consistent failing, or at least a consistent failing, failing is perhaps the wrong word, but a consistent gotcha for CEOs is that most people are quite comfortable by that point delegating tasks or objectives and sort of saying, well, I'll tell you what I want. You go off and do it. There are far fewer people who are happy delegating strategic envisioning and design to members of their exco. And yet the organizations that work best, that work most fluidly, are the ones where people can actually respond rapidly and on the fly. And so, you know, I think that would be the most significant bit of advice I'd give. And, you know, I, I think the other thing in terms of the nature of what CEOs are doing, change is hard for everybody, right? And yet for most industries in the world, uh, change is beyond a constant. There are regulatory challenges people have to face. There are technological challenges people have to face. There's the whole displacement of the traditional mechanism of the sales cycle 
that people have to face. And the best, well, the best again is is perhaps the wrong bit of advice, but uh, you know, the people who have seemed to have been most effective are the people who delegate the challenge of change to the aspects of their leadership team that are best suited to deal with them, right? So people are different. Each each individual brings certain preconceptions, certain traits, a certain you know level of comfort and uh, understanding, usually in different domains, right? So the, your CFO might be really good at dealing with cost change. Your ops guy might be really good at the technology side of things, right? And if you're trying to get your head around all of that and deal with all of that change yourself, then chances are you're going to struggle a lot more to put your arms around it than if you're, te- if you're de- basically delegating the problems themselves to individuals within, within your firm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's extraordinary advice and thank you for that. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, what do you look for? You've been given a mandate. What do you look for in a, in a CEO? And how does that translate into the delegator, leader, and business developer that you're describing in, in what you've just said? So maybe I'll preface that a little bit, right? So CEOs aren't kind of, you know, immaculately sort of created the, mo- the moment there is a need for a CFO. Mo- you know, e- each executive has come from a-, a particular business line. And you get senior executives, the three most common, in general, tend to be finance, distribution, and strategy at the moment, right? Um, you, in, in, in manufacturing firms, you get more people from operations. And, you know, in, in a couple of very notable instances, you know, in, including a, a fairly well-known electric car manufacturer, they come from an engineering line. And what we look for, or what I look for, really depends upon the problem set that the organization is trying to solve. Businesses don't operate in a vacuum. They operate in a competitive landscape, and they operate in a certain conditions of strategy, ambition, shareholder intent and board intent. And all of those things play into, on the one hand, you know, what the need is today. And that need will very much govern the kind of leader that needs to be installed in that, in that, installed in that organization. On the other side, so if you think about this almost as, as two pillars, on the one hand, you have the extraneous. On the other hand, you have the unspoken or the internal, right, that, that people like to think about as culture, practices, the organizational process and policies, the, the organizational networks that operate, and how those networks represent themselves, you know, in, in terms of their, of their cultural dynamic, their authority distance, all the other features that define sort of groups of humans in, in social interaction. The slightly overhacked word fit is also extremely important. So I've, I've seen people who on paper looked perfect fail in organizations because they could just not build the bridges they needed to, to work effectively. And I've seen others, and, and I'm certainly very human, I've, I have to confess there are situations where somebody's been installed in a leadership team. My initial reaction was did not see that going that way. And again, on paper, there, there's potentially a much stronger candidate out there. But at the same time, this individual fits the firm. And so they were able to take what they had and deliver on that much more wholly than the individual who was on paper 
superior might have been able to. And I think just just a small digression here, you know, coming back to your first question, what makes a CEO? You know, I I think we do talk about strategy, we talk about all of these things. But to a degree, the answers in the question, right, it's, it's a chief executive officer. While people will say, well, you should be the chief strategy officer or the chief revenue officer, the title is chief executive officer. The job of the chief executive officer is ultimately to ensure flawless competitive execution. And and so everything is focused towards can this person deliver, you know, and can they deliver against the specific strategy in the specific environment that they're going to find themselves. And that has personality implications. It also has business line implications, like I said. So will it be a CFO? Will it be a chief distribution officer? Will it be somebody from strategy? You know, will it be somebody who's basically a lateral hire? All of that is is dependent upon the problem set. How do you stop the psycho in suits becoming the disruptive force that they tend to be, having answered perfectly all the questions that are asked during the interview and and, um, review process, and then be found for what they are uh, when they get into the positions of authority? Well, um, that's a great question and a, a really tough one to answer and one where sort of I, I suspect uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say something that will be very contentious to perhaps some of your audience. Look, there is a place for psychometrics in assessing individuals. There's also, and I think this is really, really important and perhaps underdone, a very important place in the use of referencing. It doesn't matter how many interviews you have with an individual, right? There's only so much you can get from a one-hour conversation or even a two-hour conversation with an individual. And within a one or two-hour conversation, you know, human beings bring a lot of plasticity to social engagements. It's what we're good at. You know, it's, it's, it's how we evolved. To be able to kind of shape or manage the conversation is within the, the, the scope most individuals um, however, it's a lot harder to do that with your entire life, right? So if you're a psycho in a suit, but your entire life is spent not being a psycho in a suit, then the question becomes somewhat moot. But if you're a psycho in a suit, and you, then, then chances are by the time you've hit sort of a senior leadership position, you will have expressed those personality traits in the past. And that's why it's so important to have independent referencing, not just to have the individual cherry pick the referees they're going to give you and to make sure that you're really diligent in the referencing and very specific rather than going for the more generic, what do you think of this guy? It helps if the references you do are 360 degree, you know, so people can manage up really well, but struggle to manage uh, to work with their peers or manage down. Uh, and again, that is something that will come out in, in a series of good references, referencing checks. I mean, your choice of chief executive is a really big one, right? It's one of the bigger decisions you're going to make as an organization, as a board and a nomco. Um, so it's certainly one where investing that time and effort is worth it. Uh, Tanun, can I ask you about some of the, the common mistakes that are made in appointing a CEO? And you, you've touched on a few of these, these points as we go, but things like the founder of a company becoming the CEO when perhaps their area of expertise has just been in building the company, but they're not the best person to lead it going forward, or uh, the star performer 
who might have been a an outstanding salesperson leading the, a commercial division, perhaps. But again, when they're actually in the CEO and uh, CEO role and responsible for the entire company, they may have just been better off staying as a specialist in a particular field. Are those the, the kind of mistakes that are made in, in appointing a, a CEO? Are there, are there others along those lines? So those are mistakes that are made. You're right, Michael. I mean, you know, and, and particularly if you've got a star performer, it is quite easy for the organization to be held ransom to that star performer. And some of that is just the, the reward dynamics, in many organizations, right? So if you're an organization that has a pyramid-like pay structure and your CEO is the highest paid individual in the firm, you know, then your technical experts will naturally want to move from being a technical expert to being a chief executive, unless they're enormously self-aware, right? And you can't sort of premise your entire strategy really around that. The other thing that I've seen a lot of is our industry is changing. We're facing the following challenges, but you know, we know what the last guy was like. He did all right. Get us a guy like the last guy that sort of limits the bounds of the kind of individual that you're going to hire. Um, And there's a couple of things there, right? And that is, that comes down to sort of the nominating committee board composition it also comes down to the level of training you give your board on the subject of chief executives and recruitment. Um, so there are lots of ways you can screw up a chief executive hire. But at the end of it, the root causes of those tend to be because you've got the wrong people or the wrong set of ideas going in. And you know the, the most evident of that is when you've got a chair or a head of Nomco who says, look, I know the following guys, I trust them, why don't we get one of these? Now, I've seen that work exceptionally well too, but not always, not and, and, and more rarely in periods of great change or disruption in industries, because by their very nature, chairs and, and boards, unless you've worked very hard to kind of build them up, tend to be people who've operated in sort of a prior version of the industry, if you like. And then the second is just, you know, having an organization that is designed in, in a way that allows sort of the, the CEO recruitment process to be taken, to be held to ransom for one reason or another. Tanoon, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fascinating. Uh, if you'll join us again next time, we might have a look at the really practical side of the executive search. Basically, how do you put yourself forward as a candidate and actually get on the search list? Perfect. I look forward to that. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That was Tanoon Pasha, an experienced CEO and CIO and an expert in leadership, advisory and search. That wraps things up for this episode. Thanks very much for your company today. There's plenty more on this topic in particular in the book, Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond by Philip Levinson. Order it online from Booktopia, Amazon or Dimmix. And while you're online, hit subscribe on the podcast too so that you get the next episode direct to your playlist. I'm Michael Thompson and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Mm-hmm.